You may be seated and good morning, Moody Church. It's good to be back with you and to be able to share with you again. And uh, Ben, uh, as as Bill mentioned, we've had some kind of timing and some planning things. Elders and staff had some things that we need to align the last few weeks. And so they, uh, so I was, I've been here a lot less the last five weeks, but we've sort of passed through that season. And so I'll be here uh, pretty much regularly for the next several months. And so looking forward to uh, opening our Bibles today. If you turn your Bible to 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 5, uh, but then we'll jump back into Matthew next week. So we'll continue that together. But our, our message today is warmth, uh, welcome, and witness in the Reckless Grace series. We're in the middle of our Go conference, and 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 5 is our text for this morning. And here, I want to remind us to be a church of greater warmth and welcome. We will need to add more action, labor, and focus to our witness. To be a church of war- greater warmth and welcome, we'll need to add more action, labor, and focus to our witness. We're going to look at 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 5 to help us understand that, to think more deeply on that, because here Paul is writing to Timothy. Paul the Apostle is writing to Timothy, his mentee in the Lord, his son in the Lord in many ways, and he starts here in our verse with a very personal closing charge. Starts with this in 2 Timothy chapter 4. It says, but as for you, or I charge you in the presence, he, he very much has laid this out clearly in verse 1. It's not on your screen, but stay with me. In verse 1, I charge you in the presence of God and Christ Jesus. And then in verse, he jumps down to verse 5, and he says, as forever, we'll put it on the screen. He says this, he says, as for you, lays out very clearly to them, be always sober. Now remember, at the beginning of the chapter, he said, I charge you. So now it's doubly personal, but as for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Now, we're going to look through this passage, and, but we're going to specifically focus in on the last two phrases. You'll note there's four. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, but then do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. That's what we're going to focus on today as we're in the midst of our Go conference. Now, he says uh, several things here, and sometimes people may ask, well, if it's written to Timothy, does it apply to me? Because not everything Paul writes to Timothy, Paul, not everything Paul writes is going to be directly applicable to you. At one point he says, uh, come before winter. Well, that's not necessarily uh, applicable directly to you. That's his instruction to an individual. So does this apply to you? Well, I mean, we look at it. It says, keep a clear head, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. I think that's clearly Paul is telling Timothy to do and to be certain things, but what I want to say to you is those things are all quite applicable to us, and so this is Paul's pastoral direction to Timothy, and this today will be my pastoral advice to us here at Moody Church. Also, too, it lacks the definitive article. It doesn't tell uh, Timothy to be the evangelist. It says specifically to do the work of an evangelist or perhaps to do your work in evangelistic ways. So this applies, I believe, to all of us, and that's what I want us to look at today. Why? Because to be a church of greater warmth and witness, we will need more action, labor, and focus in our witness. Now, you've already heard uh, Pastor Bill talk some about warmth and welcome and witness are being themes that we've talked a lot about. And so, after consulting with him, I'm going to share in and around some of these ideas, but to do so from 2 Timothy 
chapter 4. Now, there are going to be some key things I want you to see. We'll take a picture and take a look at it. First, it's the language of action, labor, and focus. You'll see here at the top, action, labor, and focus. Would you say those three words out loud with me today? Let's say them together. Action, labor, and focus. Now, if you're worshiping this online, I know that seems a little weird to do it at home, but do it anyway because no one's around you, so no one will think it's weird. So we're going to say it again here. Join us and say it out loud. Let's do it. Action, labor, focus. The first thing I want us to look at is the action, and the word do is the focus here, right? Do the work of an evangelist. And that's a reminder that we're to recklessly tell of God's grace. We're to recklessly tell of God's grace. To be a church of greater warmth and welcome, we need to add more action, labor, and focus to our witness. And this is a call, I believe, for all of us. We try to do this with our neighbors. I've shared with you before. I've encouraged you to take a map and make a map of your own neighborhood, to write a list of your friends and acquaintances, to pray for them and to reach out to them and to serve them and to encourage them. At the end of the service, there'll be those maps and the lists again available at stations in and around the church. Now, here's the deal. I really want to encourage us to make it a priority to be a gospel-sharing church. I believe that we're certainly a gospel-preaching church. I believe certainly we're a gospel-believing church. But being a gospel-sharing church means not just that we talk about it in church, that we talk about it outside of the church. I mean, it's, it's interesting to me, we're coming up on the National Day of Prayer. In fact, one, an old friend of mine, Ronnie Floyd, is going to be leading the National Day of Prayer focus and emphases. I'm deeply thankful for him. What I would encourage us all to remember, though, is because people across the country this week and coming up will be praying for revival. And I want to join them, and I'm going to be praying for revival as well. But I want to tell us it's not enough to go to meetings to pray for revival when we won't go to our neighbor to tell them about Jesus. So we can feel good about praying. You know why? Because everyone wants to pray that people will meet Jesus, but nobody seems to want to tell people how to meet Jesus. And ultimately, it's us together taking the action, do, do. There's going to be something we are going to do. It's unapologetic. It's Paul's writing to Timothy. He's clear. You're going to do this thing, right? Now, now, now why? Um, now, the challenge is for a lot of churches, a lot of Christians have sort of lost the passion for doing their work in evangelistic ways. Now, not, not, not our church and not you. Let's just say we're talking about somebody else today. Let's plan on that throughout the message. Let's think we're talking about somebody else today. It makes me feel better. Um, but both matter that we might indeed pray for God to move in the hearts of His people. Remember, he, Jesus tells them to pray for the Lord of the harvest to send workers into His harvest field. But then, right after telling them that, He sends them as workers into the harvest field. So we've got to disciple one another to believe the gospel and pray for the opportunities to share it. To share it. Let's look at some numbers that might help us to see some of the challenge and some of the concern. Here's a statistic we did at Lifeway Research a couple of few years ago. We asked regular churchgoers about how many times have you personally shared with someone how to become a Christian? The most common answer was, well, zero. In the last six months, I've shared with nobody how to become a Christian. Now, we also know that people tend to exaggerate to the positive their answers. 
Uh, in other words, when you ask somebody, you're in the middle of a survey of churchgoers, and you're asking them questions like, you know, do you, do you pray? They know they're supposed to say yes to that. And so there's a, there's a part in our brain that sort of turns on in that po- point, and we, we answer in such, there's a technical word, we answer better or more in line with what we would think is the right answer. There's a technical term for that. It's called lying. It's not the technical term. It's called the halo effect. But in the halo effect, so we might expect that some people say, you know, I've actually done that. You know, so the most common answer, 61% of the people said, I didn't share with anybody in the last six months. I'm sure that's not our church, because remember, we're talking about other people. But you look here and you see one person, you know, uh, 16% say they talked to one person, and, and then you go all the way down. This is Jerry Root, and you can kind of see the rest of the people all around here. Did you, were you blessed by Jerry Root last week? Isn't he a great guy? Yeah. We had the privilege of serving together in the Evangelism Leadership Department at Wheaton College, and so, so glad he was able to be here with you. But here's the reality is there's a whole lot of people seem to be praying for a revival without a whole lot of people talking about Jesus. And that ultimately is a disconnect that we want to address. So do, right? Right? Now we want to pray, right? Jesus actually tells us pray to the Lord of the harvest to send workers into his harvest. But then Paul writes to Timothy, the equally inspired word of God, and he says, do, do this. Take some action, share with someone how to become a Christian. You say, Ed, well, maybe they didn't share the gospel. Maybe they invited their friends to church. Well, let's take a look. Here's the next chart. In the last six months, have you invited an unchurched person to attend a church service or some other program at your church? Now we're about half of the people say zero. These are church attendees at Protestant churches, and half of the people say, I haven't invited a single solitary individual in the last six months into an opportunity to come to church. Now, when we see that, again, we begin to get concerned. Now, remember, I'm, it's not our church. We're talking about the other people. Well, the reality is interesting when we look at the culture itself. We ask some questions of unchurched people. Unchurched people is just a language that means they haven't been to church, synagogue, or mosque for anything other than a wedding, holiday, or funeral in the last six months. So these are people who don't go to church. So they're almost, uh, the vast majority of them won't be Christians. Um, uh, most of them are, 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 probably have some sort of vague Christian background, but they're not engaged. So then we looked at younger unchurched people, those in the ages of 18 to 29, because everyone would assume that 18 to 29-year-olds are the most resistant, because that's what we hear on the news. Well, let's look at when we ask them their openness, right, their willingness to listen. Now, here it is. 89% said they're willing, they agreed somewhat or strongly with the statement that they're willing to listen to someone tell them about what they believe about Christianity. 89, so almost 9 out of 10 people say, young adults who don't go to church say, you know where the young adults who don't go to church are, right? Walk outside to your left or your right after church. and Go meet some. And yet 90% of them, and 89% say they're willing to listen to someone tell them about what they believe about Christianity. 61% say they're willing to study the Bible with a friend. 48% say they're, 46% say they're willing to join a small group to learn more about the Bible and Jesus. Now, I want you to miss this, right? Now, I know you hear stats, and the fact is 87% of stats you hear are made up by the speaker. I know that to be the case. This is actually from a robust research project where we studied and focused in and reported in USA Today and seen in other places. These are not made up numbers. Here's what I want you not to miss, right? 
We have a nation with open hearts and a church with closed mouths. Now again, talking about other churches, not ours. But maybe, maybe we at Moody are kind of the same in some ways. You see, I, I would wish we had more conversions, people coming to a Christ for a church our size. And I would wish we would see more people sharing the gospel, more people responding to the gospel at a church named after an evangelist, right? We have here pedigree and heritage. Let's get reckless with sharing the gospel. Reckless is an interesting phrase. I didn't choose the title. David Zupercue did, and he's pretty reckless with his title choosing. But I did like his video. Wasn't that pretty neat? A video from the roof. I love the video presence here. But listen, reckless is an interesting word. I looked it up in the dictionary. It says, without thinking or caring about the consequences of an action. Can I just tell you, I think so many people are worried and care too much about what other people will think and are less concerned about Jesus' message getting out. So worry less about what people think about you. Help them think more about Jesus. Get reckless with sharing our faith. Of course, when you think about reckless sharing, you think about that parable in Matthew chapter 13. As we go through the Gospel of Matthew, uh, we'll be heading towards Matthew 13 pretty soon. It says, Jesus told them, it's not on your screen, so just listen with your heart. It says, a sower went out to seed. Jesus, uh, Jesus is speaking, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and birds came and devoured them. And other seeds fell on the rocky ground where they didn't have much soil. Immediately they sprang up. Since they had no depth of soil, but the sun rose, and they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some, some thirty, some. But he who has ears, let him hear. So the disciples at that point are like, why do you keep talking in these parables? And so Jesus then explains this parable to them. I don't want you to miss this, right? It says, hear then the parable of the sower, he says in Matthew 13, verse 18. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatched away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. And for those that, was, those that were sown on rocky ground, this is like the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, but he endures for a while, and then the tribulation or persecution arises on account of the world immediately he falls away. As for that was uh, sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke out the word and it proves unfruitful. And for the one that was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in a case a hundredfold, in another sixty, in another thirty. Listen, don't, don't miss this. There's a call in our lives to recklessly sow seed. Say, well, Ed, i got to make sure that I have spent enough time so that they know I'm not too this much, I'm not too that much, and then after 14 years of knowing me, I might casually slip in a God bless you after they sneeze and begin the 10-year process of sharing the gospel with them. That's not the picture that we see in the Bible. There's a recklessness. Now, recklessness doesn't mean that you're going to be abrasive, or recklessness doesn't mean that you're going to be inappropriate, that recklessness doesn't mean you're not going to think about how they might perceive what you share. But i got to tell you, one of the realities is doing the work in evangelistic ways means we've got to turn up the temperature a few notches here. We've got to make it a greater priority. I think about the neighborhood I grew up in. It was an Irish Catholic neighborhood just outside of New York City. 
And I remember this little church. I never went to it. I guess really to say I remember it. I remember it because I visited it about 20 years ago. I didn't remember it at the time, but my sister would remember it because my mother told me what happened. My mother told me that some little Baptist church right next to us in a town called Westbury, I lived in Levittown, New York at the time, and and a little Baptist church sent out a bus because it was the 70s and people sent out buses. In fact, there were so many buses at some point that churches started having traffic jams on Sunday mornings. But this little church in Westbury decided that my little neighborhood in Levittown needed some reckless sowing of some seed, and they came, and they came by our door. They literally knocked on our door, and somebody, my mother said, hey, would you mind if we took the kids to church in the bus on Sunday? My father, who was pretty much a drunk at that time, turned around his life in powerful ways, My father was pretty much a drunk at that time. I said, I don't care. My mother didn't know any better. So my sister came that next day. I didn't know. I wasn't going to go to church. I wasn't that kid. But my sister rode the bus to church. And I guess some crazy, reckless church in Westbury, New York, decided to sow seed in this little neighborhood of Levittown. And my sister rode that bus to church, and then, and then she heard the gospel, and, and she came to faith in Christ. And then she came home, and she started talking to my mom about wanting to know more about God, and my, my mom didn't know how to respond. My dad wasn't really engaged in our lives, so my mom said, okay, well, I don't know. I mean, she didn't go to that church because she didn't want to ride the bus, I guess, but, but she went to another church, and there, about six months later, she heard the gospel and was changed by its power. Well, then we moved as a family. New York City was kind of going bankrupt. We moved. My father couldn't find work because of his alcoholism. He just made a change in life. So we moved to Florida, and my mother kept seeing her, I kept seeing her life life change, and she said, Eddie, that's what she called me, and you may not. She said, Eddie, (laughs) we got to get you some of this in your life. So she made me go to this youth group, and I forced me to go to this camp, and on the back of that camp on August 13th, I sat in the back with all the kids who didn't want to hear any of this foolishness, and Jesus got a hold of me, and he changed my life because some crazy church in Westbury, New York, decided to go to my little neighborhood in Levittown and sow some seed. And to be a church of greater warmth and welcome, we will need to add more action, labor, and focus to our witness. We've got to do the work of an evangelist. Doesn't end there, right? Come back to our reminders, right? We're talking about action, labor, and focus. Number two is labor. I mean, literally it says the work, right? Do is the action. Labor is the work. To be a church of greater warmth and welcome, we will need to add more action, labor, and focus to our witness. I want to encourage you to promiscuously share the gospel. Promiscuously. Some of you are nervous about that word, aren't you? (laughs) That's not a bad thing. Say the word with me. It won't kill you. Ready? Promiscuously. See, that word has sort of been primarily used, though that's not the original meaning of the word and still not the general meaning of the word. It's come to mean that you're sort of uh, sharing too much of yourself with everybody else. But you can see how the root of that word actually was indiscriminately sharing. So don't, don't miss that, you see. See, we have to recognize that to indiscriminately, to promiscuously share the Word of God is that we're not holding it back from anybody. I want you to remember that because I want you to make in your, in your mind, it goes to a different application of that Word, but the application is just what's being shared. Can I just tell you, I think a lot of people are very modest in their gospel sharing, and I need them to get more promiscuous in their gospel sharing. Now, that's a hard thing. 
Because people don't like it all the time. That's why the Bible refers to the gospel as the stumbling block of the cross. Then that's why it's called work. Do the work of an evangelist. That's the labor that it takes. That's why it ultimately matters. And I'm convinced that Jesus' words between his resurrection and his ascension, there's four commissions that he gives. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations among them. I just think Jesus' last words need to be our first priority. Now that means it's all of our job. You know, I was yesterday speaking at Moody Seminary's uh, graduation. So John Jelenic and Greg Thornton and others from our church were there. We went over to their uh, Detroit campus, and uh, it was great fun. I, I got to speak, uh, give the commencement address, and I talked about how we don't need to, and we've got to avoid the danger of letting it be the pastor's job. See, that's how it happens. And I was actually speaking to seminary graduates and say, listen, there's a gravitational pull. It's your job to go reach everybody for Jesus. You know why I gave you a map and a list? Here's why I gave you a map and a list. Because you're not mapping my neighborhood, you're mapping yours. I mean, I've already mapped my neighborhood, right? And I think that's great, and I want you to map your neighborhood. Now, <clears throat> it doesn't always mean, doesn't always mean that it's easy, but it is something all of us are called to do, to do the work. I remember I was interim pastor years ago at a church, and um, it, was a, it, was a, it was a larger church, and as a larger church, it sort of had systems in place like we do. You may notice at the end of each service, they have, we have prayer partners who'll be up at the balcony, or they'll be here up front to pray with you. Well, at this church, every week we did a, uh, an altar call. We called it an altar call, though we actually had no altar. It was basically a carpeted step that we pretended was an altar. Um, but we said, you can come here and pray, but there would be people. And I, my job at the end of the service was I'd give the message, and I would say, now, while the music plays, would you come? And people would come to the front. And what happened was, is couples would come up, and there would actually be, there were actually three, we have two main aisles, there were three main aisles there, and there'd be people who'd stand, a, a man and a woman, and then a couple behind them who would stand and receive people as they would come. So their job was, people would walk down the aisle, they would meet them, and I just got to calling them the goalies, because they would come down and they'd sort of catch the people and pray with them right there. So I called them the goalies. Well, one day, so my job was pretty much to be up here. There were steps down, so I would walk down, and, and I would say, maybe on the lower thing here, I would say, would you come? This would be, would you come now to respond? And, and, but my job was not to greet people because my job was to continue to encourage people to come. Well, one day, this young couple snuck past the goalies, and they got to me, and I was excited about it, and they said to me, they call me Brother Ed. It's the American South, so they call me Brother Ed. Now, where I come from, the brotherhood was the mafia, so I didn't want to say anything. I said, I'm not with them, but I'll pray with you. And so they said, Brother Ed, they were a young couple. They had an eight-year-old son. We'll call him Johnny. They said, Brother Ed, would you pray? Would you meet with us? Johnny's got some questions, and then we want you to pray with him and lead him to Christ. And little Johnny seemed like he was up for that. And so, but I realized at that moment that by doing so, I was unintentionally creating a system that was unhelpful for the advance of the gospel. So I said to them, no. I said to them super nicely, no. I said to them, no, 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 I mean, why don't you guys talk to your son and explain the gospel to him, and then you lead him to Christ? And I expected them to say, what a great idea. But they said, but, but Brother Eddie's got questions. And I said, I mean, but are they hard ones? Uh, is he struggling with the ontological arguments with the existence of God? Is it lapsarianism or theodicy, or is it Calvinism, Arminianism? No, he wasn't. <clears throat> Bill, can I bother you to have someone grab me a bottle of water? Would you mind getting someone to do that? Thanks. Um, so, so I was meeting 
right there with them, and they, they got kind of mad at me, to be perfectly honest. And they, they went home, and they, they actually it was a Sunday school-based church, and so they, they called their um, Sunday school class and complained about me. They actually called two Sunday school classes of people and complained about me. They said they called me a Yankee interim. That's what they called me in the South. Right? I've seen cards from some of you, you call me an East Coast interim. And so either way, it gets there. By the way, the other East Coast pastor you had was named D.L. Moody, and he had a real Boston accent. Um, so, so, so they got mad, and, and like two Sunday school classes full of people heard that I was, you know, not quite how I would describe it. <coughs> Thank you, Elsa, you're great. Good. I could have you throw it to me, and I could catch it. Wouldn't that be awesome? We'd have like mad athletic skills right there. But let's be honest, I'd get hit by it. <coughs> So, so, so I went, uh, two weeks later, I came back to church, and there they were again, and they intentionally talked to the goalies, walked past them, came up to me, and said, they're about to say something to me, and they said, Brother Ed, we want to talk to you. I was like, okay. They said, Brother Ed, we just want to, we want to thank you for not robbing us of the opportunity of praying with our son. And I thought to myself, and thank God that they had talked to little Johnny, and they led little Johnny to Jesus. As they were walking away, I thought, I bet they didn't call anybody back that they said bad things about me last time we were together. <laughs> and that's how it sometimes rolls. So you don't want you to miss this. Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon, the famous preacher, once put it this way. He said, the propagation of the gospel is left not to a few, but to all the disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, according to the measure... <clears throat> <clears throat> excuse me, the measure of grace entrusted to him by the Holy Spirit. Each man is bound to minister in his day and generation, both to the church and among unbelievers, all Christians are to exert themselves to the utmost to extend the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, think about families we have here while we celebrate this missions conference, right? Kalman and Anna-Marie Dobosch, who have served Transworld Radio for years in Vienna and now in North Africa. They've been instrumental in direction and broadcasting the gospel into communist or closed countries for years. Even now, the focus of their radio signals into Muslim countries where people can hear the gospel in their own language, right? Or the Ollie's family, who spent now two generations, father and son, doing church plants in Mexican villages since 1945. The stories of their sicknesses and beatings and escaping death, they will raise your hair. We have a doctor who lives on the border between two countries in Asia to help with medical needs and sneaks Bibles into the country as he goes. How can they give so much to spread the gospel to people groups around the world and they can cross borders and cross cultures and some people can't cross a room to tell somebody about Jesus? Let their service inspire you. There's 31 missionaries that have been with us during this GO conference. And their heart and their desire is that the world might know Jesus. And it's not just their work, it's your work. It's our work. Let me tell you a parable. It's a parable that I first heard uh, John MacArthur actually say, and I, I Googled it, and he said he read it in a Presbyterian magazine. I can't find where it comes from. But it goes like this. On a dangerous seacoast where shipwrecks often occur, there was a once a crude life-saving station. The building was just a hut, and there was only one boat, and the few devoted members kept a constant watch over the sea. With no thought for themselves, they went out day and night tirelessly searching for the lost. 
Many lives were saved by this wonderful little station, so it became famous. Some of those who were saved and various others in the surrounding areas wanted to become associated with this life-saving station and give their time and money and effort to support its work. New boats were bought and new crews were trained. This little life-saving station grew. Some of the members of the life-saving station, though, were soon unhappy that the building was so crude and poorly equipped. They felt that a more comfortable place would be provided as the first refuge of those saved from the sea. So they replaced the emergency cots with beds and put better furniture in an enlarged building. Now the life-saving station became a popular gathering place for its members. And they redecorated it beautifully and furnished it as sort of a club dedicated to life-saving. Less of the members were now interested in going out to the sea in those life-saving missions, so they hired lifeboat crews to do the work. The mission of life-saving was still giving lip service. They talked about it, but, but they, were too, they were too busy or lacked the necessary commitment to take part in those life-saving activities personally. About this time, a large ship was wrecked off the coast and hired crew brought in boatloads of cold, wet, half-drowned people. They were dirty and they were sick and some of them had black sin and some of them spoke a strange language and the beautiful new club was considerably messy by the time it was done. So the property committee immediately had a shower house built outside the club where victims of shipwreck could be cleaned up before coming inside to their new beautiful facility. At the next meeting, there was a split in club membership. Most of the members wanted to stop the club's life-saving activities as being unpleasant and a hindrance to the normal life pattern of the club. But some of the members insisted that life-saving was their primary purpose and pointed out that they were still called a life-saving station, but they were finally voted down and told if they wanted to save the life of all the various kinds of people shipwrecked in those waters, then they could begin their own life-saving station down the street. And they did. As years went by, the new station experienced the same changes that occurred in the old. They evolved into a club, and yet another life-saving station was founded down the coast. If you visit that seacoast today, you'll find a number of exclusive clubs along that shore. Shipwrecks are still frequent in those waters, only now most of the people drowned. I want you not to miss this because as I drove here this morning up the street to get here, I saw building after building that at one time had a vibrant gospel witness, but today was more known for what it used to do than what it does today. And the question is, is that where we're headed? <coughs> Now, I've said before, I'm not a prophet, I'm not the son of a prophet, and I work at a nonprofit organization. <laughs> I don't know the future, but I know that in the present, to be a church of greater warmth and welcome, we will need to add more action, labor, and focus to our witness. Number three, come back to action, labor, and focus. It's the focus, right? Do the work of an evangelist, right? So this is, we've, we've talked some about what it means to actually share in a, well, promiscuously, wantonly to everybody, recklessly tell of God's, God's grace, to promiscuously share the gospel. Now it's an intentional focus on sharing, making it a priority in our lives. So I'm convinced that to be a church of greater warmth and witness, we'll need to add more action, labor, and focus to our witness. <coughs> Now, the work of an evangelist, the word evangelist is only here. The only time actually we see this in Paul's letters is in Ephesians chapter 4, and Acts 21.8 is in Luke's writings. So the idea of being an evangelist is an interesting one. Jerry Root, who shared last week, always starts by telling people, I don't have the gift of evangelism. I'm not an evangelist. And then he goes on to tell the 74 people he led to Christ on the way to the meeting this morning. 
Um, but the reality is for all of us, it's the normal impulse to become less evangelistic over time. In the New International Greek Commentary, it says this about this passage. Paul wants Timothy to continue to evangelize even though he's working in a more settled situation, and this is not a new and unevangelized territory as Philip was. In whatever capacity, he said, Timothy serves, he must continue to do the work of an evangelist. I want you to hear this because it's so applicable, right? This is why this verse is so applicable to you. There's no role at Moody Church that we can't turn up the temperature a bit and warm our evangelistic passions a bit more. If you're working with children, if you're serving as a greeter, if you're engaged in community activities and more, for all of us, we do our work in more evangelistic ways. You say, Ed, I don't have the gift of evangelism. I've got great news for you, okay? I don't have the gift of evangelism either. Nobody does because there's no such gift mentioned in the Bible. So I want you not to miss that. There's no gift of evangelism ever mentioned in the Bible. The evangelist is mentioned in the Bible, but the evangelist trains God's people, Ephesians 4 says, for works of ministry to the building up of the body of Christ. So the evangelist's job is to train all of us to do our job because there's no such thing as the gift of evangelism. There's just the responsibility of sharing the gospel. <coughs> there was a, uh, a Barna research study a few years ago. When I, when I first started learning some about how God gifts people, it was actually Elmer Towns. He was one, is and was, uh, was and is one of my heroes, a good friend. And Elmer would teach in the 80s, I first heard him teach, maybe it was the 90s, I first heard him teach that about 10% of Christians have the gift of evangelism. So that's what I always thought. 10% of Christians have the gift of evangelism. And then Barna started doing research, and here's what they said in their most recent study on spiritual gifts. He said, quoting the Barna study, among the most recent, among the most, among the interesting facets of the research was that now just 1% of believers claim to have the gift of evangelism, down 4% five years ago. Now again, I remember in the 90s, supposedly 10%, so don't want you to miss this, right? So in our lifetime, for most of us, we've actually seen maybe 10% of people think they have the gift of evangelism, now to less than 1% of people have the gift of evangelism. You know why? Because we're talking ourselves out of sharing the gospel. <clears throat> Yet Spurgeon put it this way. He said, every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. Now, that's the call of God on our lives. I want you not to miss this, right? 2 Corinthians 5.19 says this. It says, he is entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. You see, the world's broken and lost, out of right relationship with God. We have been entrusted with this message of reconciliation. In the NLT, it puts it this way. It says, he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. Now, I don't want you to miss this, right? Because I love what we're doing here, and I, I love how we're working. I love our th past Thanksgiving theme about, about bringing greater uh, welcoming feel to the facilities. But I want you not to miss this, right? I'm for that, so don't misquote me. I'm for that. But we can spruce up the barn all day long, but the wheat isn't going to harvest itself. If this building won't bring them, no building will bring them. If this reputation won't bring them, no reputation will bring them. It's the gospel and you telling it that will reach them. Let's be known as a place that's not just historic, though it is, not just beautiful, though it is, but it's a place where people know and meet Jesus. To be a, greater, to be a church of greater warmth and welcome, we'll need to add more action, labor, and focus to our witness. Number four, and finally, it says fulfill your ministry. 
Now, if you've got a ministry here, it's right in the verse, the fourth point taken right out of the verse, action, labor, and focus do the work of an evangelist, right? Action, do, labor, the work, focus of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. I want you to fulfill your ministry. <coughs> now, fulfilling your ministry means to be used by God, and part of that fulfilling of your ministry will be to use by God in evangelistic ways. See, the ending sums up the passage, right? Paul's writing to Timothy, keep a clear head, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. So if you're working with kids here, thank you for doing so. Could you turn up the temperature some? Bill's been leading us in organic outreach, a book that our elders have read and our leadership team has read, and Bill's been leading us to this greater warmth, welcome, and witness. And one of the themes is that we got to turn up the temperature so I'm asking you, right, will, will you turn up the temperature if you're working with students or if you're engaged in children's ministry or if you're working in a small group, if you're leading a, a, a Bible study, will you say, let's as a group turn up the temperature? I'm, I, I, I'm calling all of us. You say, well, Ed, I'm not sure I'm comfortable. Listen, if you, if you love your privacy more than you love people in your community, you won't have a fulfilled ministry. If you love the way we do church more than you love people in our community, you won't have a fulfilled ministry. If you love posting your opinions on Facebook more than you love people in your community, you won't have a fulfilled ministry. But if you'll turn up the heat a few degrees, you'll have a fulfilled ministry through the gospel being shared. <clears throat> so here's what I'm asking you to do. I want to encourage you to share with at least one person, actually to commit to do that now to pray with me, and then a few minutes to go write their name in the foyer. Just their first name, and Bill will explain more. But for us to be a church of greater warmth and witness, we need to add more action, labor, and focus to our witness. So I'm asking you to do that today. I'm asking you, at all the places where you'll have an opportunity to write a name, there's also a map and a list that you can take, put it back in your Bible if you didn't have one before, update the one that you have now to be a church of greater warmth and welcome, we'll need to add more action, labor, and focus to our witness. So I'm asking you right now, how is God going to lead you? I want you to listen to the message and amen now and then. I want you to go to amen. Oh my, what am I going to do now? Would you bow your heads with me? Father, I pray as we've bowed our heads and closed our eyes, I pray you might speak to your people here today. Father, we want this church to be a life-saving station in a way that sees men and women changed by the power of the gospel on a regular basis. Already is, but even more so, Lord, we want to have, we want to turn up the evangelistic temperature at Moody Church. So just with your head bowed and your eyes closed, just, I just want to ask you, no one, look, no one looking around, can you just right now say, if you would be willing to say to me, Pastor, I want to, I want to commit right now that there's one person, maybe more than one, but at least one person that I will begin to pray and work towards sharing the gospel this week. People around aren't looking. I just want to ask you, will you just, I mean, excuse me, this, in, even this year, I'll give you some freedom. Father, I pray that you might speak to people and burden them for neighbors and friends. If you've got someone in your mind's eye and you say, I will share the gospel with that person in the next year, or even you don't even know they are yet, but I will commit to share the gospel with them in the next year. Why don't you just raise your hand for me for just a second. Just raise your hand. Lots of people. Keep them up for just a second. Keep them up. Father, I pray for those with hands raised that you would give them opportunity, but Lord, you'd help them be promiscuous in gospel sharing, then reckless in, in spreading that seed, and faithful and intentional in sharing that gospel. 
Put your hands down. Father, I pray for all of us that you might burden us, that we might be a church that shows and shares the love of Jesus. All the poor and powerless, without the gospel, we want to shout it from the mountain. We want them to know. We want them to hear. We want them to see. In the same spirit of prayer you're in right now, would you stand with me? Just let's stand up now. Father, as, as we stand, we stand together because we need to speak together. We need to shout together. We need to tell. And Father, I pray for the hundreds of people who raised their hands in this room and perhaps even many more watching online, that you might burden them that to be a church of greater warmth and welcome, we'll need to add more action, labor, and focus to our witness. We gotta turn up the temperature. Just right now, would you just say to the Lord, just silent him, Lord, turn up the temperature in my life. Just make it your prayer. Turn up the temperature in my life. Let's shout it to all the poor and powerless so he might be glorified. Make it your prayer as we sing.